Hello, fellow foodies. Dr. Cassandra Quave here with Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. On this episode, we're going to take a closer look at the plants and medical traditions of Oman, which is situated in the Arabian Peninsula. Our guest today is Dr. Derek Lupton. He's an ethnobotanist who manages the collection and documentation of plants and seeds from across Oman in his role at the Oman Botanic Garden. Derek originally studied horticulture at the National Botanic Gardens of Ireland in Dublin, followed by a PhD in botany at Trinity College Dublin. In 2010, he joined the Oman Botanic Garden and has been doing some really amazing work there ever since. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Derek. It's great to see you. Hey, Cassie. Nice to see you. Thanks so much for having me on. Wow. It's great. It's and it's amazing how technology can can unite us from across the globe, literally. Yeah, yeah. Incredible, yeah. Yeah. So I thought maybe we could start with just a little bit of an introduction to what is the Oman Botanic Garden and kind of what's yeah. the background there. Okay, so the the garden uh, is unique immediately in the sense that it's only focusing on the native plants of Oman. You know, typically botanic gardens will have plants from all over the world maybe with a small section dealing with the native flora of that particular country. But here we're only collecting and growing native plants. So the garden was first signed into Royal Decree in 2006. And at that point, they had to decide, okay, where do we, where do we locate this place? How big is it going to be? What will the concept be? So a master plan was initiated at that point. Uh, it took a year or two for the master plan to be uh, finalized. Uh, during that period, then the site was selected. Now, the site is about uh, 15, 20 miles north of Muscat, the capital city of Oman. It's close to the highway, but it's in a very beautiful area, uh, sort of hidden behind the mountains. Oh. So the area itself has a, has a real beauty, you know, an inherent beauty. Even if we did nothing with the site, it, it still looks really incredible. The, in 2008, then that area was fenced off. Uh, it's an area of about uh, 340 hectares, so it's really, really big, massive wow. site. Uh, and if you if you visit that site now, if if there was nothing else done, only the fence put up, which has eliminated all of the grazing. There's no camels, there's no goats, there's nothing on the site. The place has recovered uh, incredibly. It's really green. Once we get a flush of rain, all of the trees, uh, you know, burst into new leaf. All of the the annuals come into flush. It's really, really incredible. So with that concept in mind, growing only native plants, the flora of a man is about 1,000, just over 1,400 species, mm. almost none of which have ever been grown before. So we're starting off with zero, with a grand plan to grow all of these plants in um, <clears throat> naturalistic habitats. So part of that, part of the original idea was to identify what are the key habitats in Oman. So in the early days, it was decided that there were seven main habitats we're going to focus on. Uh, within those habitats, there's different uh, numbers of species, different levels of diversity and so on. So the Oman, if you look at Oman from the south, right on the Yemen border, we have an area called uh, Dofar. And Dofar is the most species rich, uh, diverse part of Oman. This has about 800 of the 1,400 species in this area. Wow, what's the terrain like there? Is it mountainous or? In, yeah, you have two mountainous regions. One in the in the south, so Dofar, mm -hmm. where that I'm talking about, has a, a mountainous area. It goes up to about 1,900 meters. Uh, mm -hmm. And in the north, where we are in Muscat, 
it reaches up to 3,000 meters. Uh, so it's really extreme. Um, and both of those mountainous areas, because of their, of their scale, have, have developed their own very unique floras. But so in the south, you have this Dofar area, which is basically a dry desert dropping down on this very steep, precipitous coastal escarpment straight into the sea. Wow. But during the summer, between uh, June and September, more or less June and September, you have uh, the southwest monsoon coming from India. And this drenches this whole mountainside with fog and, and, and really dense, dense fog and moisture for three or four months. Because of this water in, a, in what is a really, really dry place, the vegetation suddenly comes into life. You have actually cloud forest in southern Oman during this period. And you have a, you know, you have a very dense tree canopy. You have a really rich understory of shrubs, subshrubs, um, bulbs, ferns, mosses, things that you would associate with really wet climates. But prior to June, before the rain comes, and after September when it ends, it just goes dry, bone dry immediately. So you have this funny, strange little period of really green environment, full of uh, life, and then suddenly it just stops. So we, we gotta we gotta recreate that in Muscat. So because that that's you know Muscat <laughs> it gets above it can be 100 above 120 degrees Fahrenheit here in the summertime. Wow. Regularly. You know, so most of those plants because they're very sensitive and, and used to cooler, moister environments during the summer, we need to there needs to be a, a climate climatically controlled an environment created for them. So one of the habitats is this Dofar mountain area. And in the Botanic Garden, this is being housed in a giant biome, glass biome, basically 1200 square meters. Uh, it's, it's really enormous. Mm. So that is the Southern element of the floor contained in the garden. The Northern element uh, of the garden also requires a, a special climatically controlled environment because the flora of the north, most of the really interesting stuff, like the juniper and the olive and so on, grows up above 1,500 meters. So again, it, it, it experiences, it's very dry, it doesn't experience that much rain, but it, it is very cool. It never reaches the really hot temperatures that muscat reaches at sea level. So in order for those plants, many endemic species, those olives and junipers and so on to, to do well, they need to be within a glass house. So the project, in the master plan, it was decided that the project would have these two huge biomes. One would be for the southern flora, and one would be for the high altitude flora in the north. Um, the, the other habitats then are everything that is outside. So you have a wadi. Wadis are basically dry riverbeds or temporarily flooded riverbeds. They have their own unique flora. Um, we have gravel deserts. So this is like a hyper arid areas where the substrate is, is fine gravel and, and stone. And then we have the, the true sand deserts, which are, as you would imagine, scenes from Lawrence of Arabia, where you have these rolling sand dunes. And so we have recre we're recreating all of those habitats within the garden itself. So the wadi, for example, is, the wadi is being built in an area where there is a natural wadi. So when it rains here, that area will flood. So what we're doing is, we're effectively gardening with native plants. So when the visitor comes, they will see native plants looking their best all the time. This is a big issue with native plants in botanic gardens. Often they look very messy and straggly. And the average visitor 
wants to see something looking a little bit more manicured. So with the wadi, for example, this will effectively be a very, very large pond with uh, an impermeable membrane beneath the stones. So the visitor won't see this impermeable layer. They will uh -huh. just see water. They will see the rocks and the, and the, the marginal plants going along the edges. But so it will be kept permanently wet. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And so, Derek, part of your role is also in leading these ethnobotanical expeditions. So you're yeah. collecting these these wild native species um, for yeah. the garden, but you're also working with local people. Can you can maybe I mean, and I guess the ethnobotany would be quite different in different parts of the country as well yeah. because they have different yeah. flora. Um, can you maybe paint a picture of what does a typical rural village look like um, in the south? Okay. So because you have, um, <clears throat> Oman is made up of, of multiple tribes historically. So the south and the north are very different places and, and the languages are completely different. Um, so you have traditional villages in the north, in the center uh, and in the south, but they're all quite different in how they operate. They're quite different in the, the plant species that they use traditionally. They're, quite, they're, they're very different in their languages. So if you're looking at the south, uh, right down towards Yemen, you have uh, tribal people down there. The local people are Jibali. This is, this is their heritage. This is the language they speak. It is not at all related to Arabic. You have Dofari tribe people who speak a Dofari Arabic. So it, is, it, ha it has a, a root in Arabic, but it's quite different. Then you move uh, to the center of Oman where you have these large gravel, flat, open, very harsh environments. You have Harisi people there. They speak their own language. Uh, then if you go to the interior, you have the sand areas, which are traditionally where the Bedouin people will live and still do. Uh, then into Muscat, Northern Oman, where you have the, the, the high mountains, you have, uh, I guess what you would call traditional Omani Arabic people. And then as you move right to the very north, if you go to the very tip of Oman, you are 25 miles, if not less from Southern Iran. So you're right across the Strait of Hormuz. You can see the, the lights of southern Iran at nighttime when you're camping on the mountains. So those people there speak also, they have a language there called uh, Hamzari, which is related to Persian more than it is to Arabic in, the, in some degree. Also, their culture is quite Persian as opposed to Arabic. So what you have is traditional cultures, quite varied uh, in their in, in how they live, the style of housing. For, for example, in the Southern Oman with the Dofari people, their houses are tend to have pitched roofs um, because they have rain and they have wet environment for at least four or five months of the year. You know, a flat roof doesn't make any sense if you're getting a lot of rain, obviously. So they have evolved the system of, of building houses with circular houses with pitched roofs. In the North, it's quite different. You have uh, traditional houses are block shaped with small windows windows tend to be north facing you know because you're you know you're trying to reduce the, the heat build up in, in the houses but uh botanically speaking uh if you're looking at traditional plant uses uh, medicine craft and so on all of these villages have incorporated uh in their past a huge array of of traditional plant uses and what's fascinating in Oman is that many of these uses are still fully active so if, if I was to take you tomorrow to the mountains and um, let's say two or three hours from Muscat, 
we would very quickly be in traditional villages where people are still using plants, native plants that they collect in the wild for everything from basic healthcare. I mean, serious health issues. People now, you know, will travel to the hospital and, and you know, take on the usual modern treatment. But for basically things like headaches, uh, stomach ailments, uh, religious ceremonies and so on, that native plants are still widely used. Um, as, it, as is the case in most parts of the world, this information, the information relating to how a plant is collected, when it's collected, how it's used and so on, is, is an oral tradition. So very little has been written down over the, over the centuries. But again, as, as, as is seen in many parts of the world, a lot of this information and this knowledge is, is disappearing. There's a huge mass exodus of young people from these villages towards the city for the typical reasons. So one of the things that we're doing at Oman Botanic Garden is rather than doing any real serious applied research, we're, we're, we're quickly running around grabbing this information as quickly as we can. Um, Before it's lost. That's so important. Yeah, because it, it, literally we're talking a couple of, a couple of decades uh, and all of this would be gone. Hmm. Um, I mean, you can see in Oman, since the 1970s, Oman has gone through a huge amount of development. And with that development has come pressure on this type of knowledge. You know? So we have myself and two or sometimes three colleagues are in the field constantly collecting information. So this, you know, ethnobotanical research or data collection is quite a slow process. You've got to develop a relationship with the people. They've got to understand what you're doing. They've got to agree and, you know, be comfortable with what they're sharing. And we have, we have had huge success. I mean, everybody, the elders in these villages are extremely talkative very very open to sharing information they understand themselves that you know they're getting old themselves and, and their their grandkids or their own kids are just not really engaged anymore yeah well what what are you doing then with this knowledge as it's being documented is this also being integrated into the educational mission of the garden itself so it can be a nationwide resource yeah so yeah we have a couple of a couple of um things we're doing with the with the data so we we, we initially just have a, we have a garden plant database that we use. So at the very basic level, when that information comes back, we, so we record, we have audio, video, and, and written and data. So we have a repository for all of this on our database. So we have a pretty extensive uh, library now of, of information, both audio and video. All of that is being used to um, populate the, the education program. And I should say that the main, one of the main Functions of the garden is education and the promotion of uh, environmental uh, knowledge and understanding and so on. Um, and a, a key part of that is is the safeguarding of the and the passing on of the ethnobotanical traditions of Oman. So all of our all of our education programs, which were which are busy writing, you know, one of the great things about this project is uh, it is never dull. You are constantly. Constantly doing something different, you know. You might say you're a botanist, but this is merely a title. You know, you could be involved in in everything from um, proofreading uh, education documents to visitors coming and going, and so on. So it's really varied. That's great. That's great. Well, I'm wondering also. So, in addition to knowledge of wild plants for medicine and crafts and food 
Can you tell us a bit about what local agriculture looks like in the country? I know from prior trips I've, I've taken just a bit north of Oman to the United Arab Emirates that dates yeah. play a really big role in local cultivation. Yeah. What other, what plants are grown there? What are real, which plants are really important to the local diet? Okay, so uh, again, it varies from north to south because of the climatic, climatic differences. Uh, so as you say, dates are extremely important, both in terms of um, culture. I mean, it's such a long, uh, long link and association with dates here. Um, but in the south, for example, you, you are really in like, it feels like East Africa when you're in the south. You have, a, it's very, it's, it's much more tropical. So you have uh, cultivation of huge uh, coconut groves a lot of bananas, uh, they would be the main staple in the south and they are exported from southern Oman. So that, that's that's something that you don't see in the north. Obviously the environment is too dry in the north for that type of thing. Bananas, um, you, you do have certain farms in the north along the coastal area where they grow bananas. But what's happened is over, over the last 30, 40 years, the, the levels of um, Salination, soil salination have really gone very, very high. So a lot of this land on the coastal plains, which was at one time quite fertile, has become really barren. So we're seeing lots of problems. Many farms are shutting down. There seems to be a shift to sort of internal farming now, sort of vertical farming, if you know what I mean, using hydroponics. Yeah. So um, salination, how does how does the introduction of salt happen? Is this just from being close to the coastline and having exposure to salt, you know? Yeah, it's just the, the using the using. I think it's in the early days we're using desalinated water that wasn't great. Ah. Uh, you get a, you get an accumulation of salt into rapid uh, evaporation, and this has just happened. I mean, probably to start with, the soil salt levels are quite high, mm-hmm. given it's a coastal area in in Arabia. I would imagine that you're starting at a pretty high point. Yeah. So it hasn't taken very long for this to happen. But once you once you move into the mountains above let's say a thousand meters you get a, a fantastic uh patterns of, of um terraced agriculture which stretch back at least three or four thousand years there are there are terraces there that are all these terraces are if you imagine these images you would see of bali or something where you see these beautiful fields but this is very much what it's like in the northern mountains um these terraces some of the oldest ones are certainly three thousand years old and these are all hand-built using uh, local stone, making soil from manure uh, and sand. Mm-hmm. Um, so these areas are very fertile. And for there, in those areas, you typically have things like um, garlic, alfalfa as a, as, a, as a fodder for animals, uh, onions, cucumbers, tomatoes. And there's still a lot, I mean, there's a lot, there's probably a lot of land races here that haven't really been researched yet. This is what we feel. We, 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 part of our research and part of our conservation work is that when we visit a village and we see a, a farmer growing lentils uh, that look quite unusual, or maybe a cucumber that looks unusual, we collect seed from that farmer. So we're, we're banking all of this seed at the Botanic Garden. It may be something unusual, we don't know, but we don't want to take the chance of losing it, you know? Yeah, that's great. So you're conserving the genetic diversity in addition to yeah. the traditional yeah. knowledge. Yeah. Well, I remember a number of years ago, you gave a beautiful presentation at one of the annual meetings of society for economic botany. 
And I was so taken by the images that you showed of these terrace gardens. And also there is a unique water system where they could actually control how the fields were watered. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I think that these, these traditions of land management go beyond just knowledge of the plants themselves. It's, yep. it's actually how do you shape the environment in a really, you know, to foster resilience in an arid place? Sure. Yeah, this, um, this system you're talking about is called the uh, Alphalage system. Um, this, again, dates back certainly 3,000 years. If you go to the very, very old areas, these are, these are basically water channels that were originally carved into the side of mountains. Uh, it basically looks like a, a piping, a gutter. Um, but the more modern in the last couple of hundred years have been built using a traditional um, cement called saruge. So what they do is there, there are different systems. Some are rain-fed and some are spring-fed. But the whole function is that they take water from a source and they direct it towards a village. And the village then will have its terraced agriculture. So the, there are the, the estimated, I think, more or less 3,000 kilometers of fallage in northern Oman. So it's hugely vast. And in fact, two of the, I think two or maybe three of the sites are UNESCO World Heritage. They really do represent um, an incredible link with the past and really phenomenal engineering. So what they do is in, in a typical example, and this, this is happening today, this is not something that was in the past. So in a village, um, you will have a, a particular, let's say a, one householder has a, a patch of land, maybe. 10 meters by 10 meters. He divides those little units up into one square meter plots, which are locally called gelba. So these gelba have, are basically a, a small flat piece of soil with ra- a raised edge. So it's like a natural bath. And at one side of that gelba, you have a little channel, a little groove put out where the water can flow in, right? So when it's, when it's that farmer's turn to receive water, the guy who looks after the the distribution of the water comes along and he has his watch and he says, okay, this guy gets 30 minutes and he opens up, basically takes out a small stone that has a rag wrapped around it. And that's enough to stop the water flowing. He removes the stone, water flows into that guy's little one meter by one meter plot. Maybe he's growing onions or garlic or something. He gets his 30 minutes. Then uh, the little gap is closed and the next guy gets his. And this is... Phenomenal, because like I say, it's a really sensible use of water. No one gets too much, no one gets too little. Everyone gets an even amount and gets what they need. That's amazing. <laughs> That's yeah, really... you see it in operation. Even, even to this day, they still use natural sundials in some of the villages. You will have a, a stick, and maybe a two-meter-high stick fixed in a point in the ground, and they have marked uh, over, over the centuries lines in the ground maybe a meter or two in front of it right and so basically as the sun is moving in the sky it's casting a shadow on these lines and each time the sun moves to the next line they know it's covered like let's say 20 minutes 30 minutes one hour so the guy is watching this when it reaches the next point he closes that field and then he opens it i mean it's it's incredible wow wow so that is it, it is just really amazing that that you know, I, I, I think about examples from different parts of the world. I, I'm thinking back to some of the work I've done um, in the Mediterranean off the coast yeah. of North Africa on a little island called Pensilaria. And there, water is also at, you know, 
it's very scarce. There's no natural source of fresh water on the island and all that they're able to collect each year is a very small amount, but they do it through the kind of specialized roof design where they collect kind of yeah. the rain and morning dew and it goes into a cistern under their houses and their entire agricultural system is also built around this conservation of, of water, even for their viticulture, they actually have yep. little conical trenches where they have yep. their grapevines. They put a little bit of water and it creates this little micro environment for each plant. Yep. It's just yep. in a time of climate change where we're going to face more and more issues with rising yep. temperatures and with scarcity of water. I just think there's so much that we can learn from these traditions that have been in place for, like you said, sure. for millennia. It's uh, yep. Well, everything down to the, if, if, if you look at, uh, like I said, at the start, the way the houses are positioned and designed. So, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have big gaping windows facing south. You have small, narrow windows. You reduce the amount of light that's uh, entering the house. You have really thick walls. Uh, the houses are really well insulated. So when they cool down, they stay cool. Mm -hmm. So all of these traditions are well known. And I mean, you can find examples of this everywhere in the world in, in, in traditional cultures. Yeah. Um, but Oman is, what I find so wonderful is that you go to the, any of these places and you're, you're not looking at a museum where this used to happen. Yeah. You're in a place where the guy is there with his, his modern day watch, you know, in most cases, and he's opening and closing uh, little channels in and out of um, people's fields. And it's really quite extraordinary that this still happens. It's amazing. Well, yeah. When it comes to food sources beyond um, beyond the plants that are cultivated, I know that um, in the Arabian Peninsula, camels have played a really important role in local food. Yeah. And how important are camels, um, especially to the Bedouin people of Oman? Yeah, yeah, they're they're highly important, really um, culturally very significant. I, I think the camel camels are in the Arabian Peninsula for the last three thousand years, uh, as I understand it. So. Even again, in the north and south, you have slightly different relationships with camels. But I think across the board, it is, it, it's a general concept that the more camels you own, the more prestige it, it, it carries. Um, so there is a push for a sheikh, a, a village leader, to own a lot of camels. Um, you know, it, it gives him a certain status, which has a knock-on effect, um, particularly in the south where camel overgrazing by camels has really decimated a lot of the natural vegetation. And it's a tricky one because you have to keep a balance in, 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 tribal, in a tribal culture like Oman, you need to keep a certain level of peace between people. Uh, you have to sort of give certain uh, concessions to certain groups. And one of those concessions, it seems to me anyway, is that people are allowed to have more camels than they actually need, which is having a negative impact. In the North, it's not such a problem. But in the south, it certainly is. Yeah. And the camels are used primarily, um, is it for transportation or for milk? Or do they eat the meat? Or is it kind of some all, the, yeah, all, of, the I mean, above? all, all of those? Yeah, it's transportation, uh, milk and meat. Uh, also racing, a lot of camel racing. Oh, fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah, the meat is eaten. There's a huge amount of camel meat eaten here. Going back to the garden, you have, you have, these educational initiatives. You also have yeah. initiatives, it sounds like, with a very strong horticultural bent because you're trying to cultivate these plants that are otherwise are wild occurring. Um, yeah. You have the ethnobotanical repositories of, of knowledge and video and audio. And then you spoke about your seed banking 
as yeah. well for conservation of genetic diversity. Yeah. Um, is there anything else we're missing? It sounds like so much is going on there right now. Well, like I said, the, none of these plants have, well, almost none of these plants have ever been grown before. So let's imagine day one. What are we going to do? Right, mm -hmm. we need to grow the 800 plants from Dofar. We need to we need to collect the seed. First of all, we need to know where the plants are growing in the field. Mm -hmm. Then we need to know when they flower, when they produce fruit. Then we need to know how to collect them. Then we need to know when they bring them back to the garden, how we treat them. Is there any, what are the tricks for germination? When we germinate them, then we need to grow them. So there's a huge series of steps, all of which were, there were, there were no handbooks for this uh, process. So when we collect seed, now, now we have a lot of experience. We know, we know where to go, when to go, what to collect, what not to collect, and so on. So when we have the seed bank sort of serves two functions at the moment. One is when we go to the field and we collect seed, um, we come back to the garden. All that seed is weighed and processed and uh, everything is accessioned and it goes onto the uh, garden's database. So there's a lot of data entry before we start anything. And uh, things like location, soil, uh, geology, altitude, aspect, all of these general sort of environmental um, characteristics are recorded in the field and entered onto the database. Seed is then processed and weighed. Some of that seed then is goes directly to propagation. So the propagation have a huge uh, list of what they need and what, what they have and what they don't have. So let's say, for example, the team were in the field last week and they collected seed of a tamarind. And the propagation team will... I mean, th th this is based on meeting almost on a daily basis with the seed bank and propagation team. Propagation say, look, we... We need uh, 500 tamarindus for the project. We currently have uh, 200, so with a, a deficit of 300. In order to grow 300 trees successfully, we need to sow about 1,500 seeds. We have a, we, we we always sow an awful lot more than we need because at every stage you lose plants. You know you, you won't get full germination. Then when you have seedlings growing, you will often lose 30, 40 percent of your seedlings through handling and root damage and so on. So at each time you're, you're getting less and less and less. So you've got to sow a lot, a lot more to start. So the seed bank serves that purpose of supplying seed to propagation, which is a massive uh, daily task. And then the other side of the seed bank is, which we're just really initiating now, is the long-term storage of rare and threatened plants in Oman. Um, so we have partnered now with the Millennium Seed Bank at Kew Gardens, and we are running a, uh, a project for a couple of purposes. One is to is to train our team to take the young Omanis, send them to Kew Gardens for, for you know seed bank training and really at the cold face of, of what's happening. Um, they come back to Oman Botanic Garden, you know, full of this enthusiasm uh, and all this fresh new knowledge. And they can then, you know, teach the Omanis their, their, their colleagues about how to do things. So the situation now is that we have set up a basic seed bank for long-term storage. Basically, we can take seeds down to minus 20. We have foil bags. We have dehumidifiers and so on. So we're targeting now, there are 267 rare and threatened species in Oman. And our aim is to have all of those in long-term storage, uh, accumulating 30 or 40 species per year for the next couple of years. This is the, this is the intention. Wow. That's incredible. That's going to make such an important contribution to conservation yeah. in the region. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's really, 
the whole concept of a botanic garden in this part of the world is, although gardens in this part of the world are, are very are very old, and that 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 is not a new idea. But the idea of having a scientifically based collection is something that is entirely alien. So it's it's challenging to some degree because we don't have anything to refer to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes people don't really understand what we're doing and why why would you why would you spend all this time collecting these seeds? They're just weeds, you know. Yeah. You know this. It's not unusual, I guess, to have that attitude. Yeah. Well, I wonder when it comes to traditional medicine, are there are there any initiatives to valorize traditional medicines or any kind of phytochemistry work that's planned, or is that something that's that's kind of not part of the core mission right now? Well, it's not part of our core mission, but we mm-hmm. are partnering. Um, there has been some projects recently with uh, Nizwa, which is a town about two hours south of Muscat, has a university. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are very keen on this particular area. So we had some projects, uh, the genus Comifera, which mm-hmm. is the genus of, of uh, myrrh. So we, our team basically partnering with the guys from Nizwa went to the field, they collected multiple different uh, collections of myrrh from different locations. They're, they were analyzed by the team in um, Nizwa. And I don't know what the outcome was. I know they published something recently on this. This is how we're going to work. We, we will partner. We don't have facilities for this type of thing. But you can partner with local universities. Yeah. That's fantastic. And Comifera is such an important genus too that's also threatened in the region, if I if I yeah. understand correctly, because it has to be yeah. maintained through these traditional methods. Yes, yeah. yeah. It's the same with um, frankincense, both from the same family, mm-hmm. versus Casey. So um, frankincense is, again, a very important medicinal tree. It's also a very important folk tree. Mm-hmm. Um, huge historical importance to the region, but it was essential to Oman's early development. I mean, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, during the Roman period. Yeah, um, for trade. Yeah, 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 and it still it still remains. Well, you know, every country will tell you we have the best frankincense, mm-hmm. and Oman claims to have the best frankincense. I, I, you know, I can't argue, but I would say because I live here, yes, it is the best frankincense. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, yeah, there are problems with illegal tapping and so yeah. on. So you know, trees are being damaged. Uh, I don't know what the impact of climate change will be in that region, but certainly the the short term is the, the problem with illegal tapping. Yeah. Well, and this is, yeah, this is an important piece of information for the listeners is that myrrh and frankincense, they look like little rocks on this, but it's actually the dried resin that's yeah. been tapped from the trees. Yeah. 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 It has a lot of, I think there have been, you know, a number of studies showing that they have um, antimicrobial properties and also yeah. analgesic um, or pain relieving properties as well. Yeah. 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 There's a very good book, um, if anyone's interested, called The Plants of Dofar, which was published in 1988 by Tony Miller, who's from Royal Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Miranda Morris, who's a linguist stroke ethnobotanist. They did an incredible period of research in, in Dofar in the late 1970s and into the 1980s. They documented uh, all of the medicinal plants, all of the craft plants, and produced this really beautiful book. Wow. It's, it's, out, it's out of print, but if you can get your hands on it, it's a great resource. Oh, it sounds amazing. And so, Derek, today, is is the garden now officially opened, or is it still closed to the public It's it, as, as it's being built and all the construction is going on? Yeah, we have. It's not. It's not open to the public, basically. So, but we do run um, private tours. We do have school groups coming. We have an educational program which we're 
we're, we're testing out basically. So we're, we're, develop, we're trying to develop a good public outreach program, certainly within the local community. So we bring kids in um, for specialist days. We're, we're, we're trying to link in with the national curriculum at different mm-hmm. age levels. So, you know, tying in with, with, with science from, from the very young age to, to school leaving age. Um, so we test out programs on the local schools. We have research groups that come in, specialists that visit, but all of this would be by, by appointment and, and, you know, it's not basically open yet. Okay, great, great. Yeah. Well, I guess one, one last question I have for you is, is a bit more personal. It's how did, how did someone with expertise in Irish flora wind up <laughs> in the Arabian Peninsula? It's <laughs> You're not the first person to ask that question. <laughs> uh, I, I think, um, well, I mean, as you know, the, the, the process uh, of studying plants uh, is, is the same really no matter where you are. There are a series of things that you do and you, you're, you inquire about. Um, the, the flora of Ireland, you know, obviously is, is a temperate flora. It's used to a lot more water than they have in Oman. Mm-hmm. So things are quite different, but the principle is the same. Um, I was, I originally had studied horticulture. Um, so I was very interested in plant propagation, but then, you know, through various experiences, I, I very much got involved in plant taxonomy. I was very much, much more interested in the scientific side of things. Went on then to do a, a botany degree uh, in Dublin and then carried on to do postgraduate and PhD. I ended up back in the Botanic Gardens in Dublin, uh, working on the Irish flora. I was doing, mainly focusing on, on, on rare plants. And during this time, we were asked to assist in the development of the Royal Botanic Gardens in Jordan. Mm-hmm. So a team of us, um, who we went to Jordan. This was, this was organized by Peter Wise. Do you know Dr. Peter Wise Jackson? I do, Jackson? yes. Okay. Uh-huh. So Peter was the director in Dublin before he went mm-hmm. to Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, so Peter had arranged that a, a team of us would go to Jordan to assist in the development of their botanic garden, doing vegetation surveys on the site and so on. And I guess somehow subconsciously this sowed a seed, if you pardon the pun, uh, <laughs> in my mind about arid flora in general. Um, a little did I know that I would be going to a man a couple of years later. So I, I think um, how I ended up in a man is, I, I think I, I really can't remember. It's quite, a, <laughs> it's quite a while ago and it's a bit of a blur, but I know I saw an ad maybe on BGCI's uh, Botanic Garden Conservation International's website. And it was very intriguing because the position clearly wanted a botanist with a horticultural background. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a great, there's not that many people with both skills. And I think they are very, very complementary um, and really essential to, to Botanic Garden uh, functioning. Yeah, absolutely. So I applied for this position. Um, I hadn't mentioned anything to my wife at this point. <laughs> so it all happened very quickly let's say let's say i applied on a monday by the fr- by friday i was offered the job and i still hadn't told my wife so <laughs> i came home on the friday evening i said how would you like to go to a man and she just said where uh so that took we had to explain where that was uh my wife is very keen you know she's happy to go we came out here for a short recce trip for like four or five days went to the garden, met the director, met some of the staff. We were just instantly mm. in love with the whole idea. Oman is such a magical place. Um, you know, it's such a peaceful, wonderful, beautiful country. So, you know, we had to come. 
That's great. Wow. Well, I hope to visit someday. I think after listening to these descriptions and, and also have seen your, your past presentations on these amazing systems of, of yeah. terrace gardening and the different ecosystems, it just sounds fabulous. <laughs> yeah, it's magical. It really is. It really is. Yeah. When, when, when all of this um, coronavirus is, 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 if it's ever behind us, uh, yeah. you know, you should come. <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you yeah. so much, Derek, for coming on the show. This has been really enlightening. Oh, you're very welcome. I hope you, uh, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks. I hope we see you, see you here someday. <laughs> You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded today on Zoom. You can find all of our former episodes at our website at www.foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find videos of our more recent episodes on our YouTube channel at Teach Ethnobotany. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.